Good morning. Let's start there. <laughs> this morning, I'm continuing our series of talks on John's Gospel. Today is Palm Sunday, but we've already had our talk on the classic Palm Sunday passage of the triumphal entry from Jeremy last week. So somewhat unconventionally, our passage today is taken from the next part of John chapter 12. Unconventional as it might be, I'm kind of glad because I think we have a tendency to skip from the triumphal entry right through to the Last Supper and on to Jesus' arrest. But if you have a quick glance in John, you'll see that Jesus has actually got quite a lot to say between the triumphal entry and the Last Supper. Words that were important for Jesus to share in his last days as a man on earth. So what I'd like to do today is spend a short time kind of looking at the passage for a bit of context. But then I'd like to share with you what I feel God has been speaking to me through Jesus' words. The things that the Holy Spirit has been for me, placing a gentle but probing finger on. So let's read through the passage. We're looking at John chapter 12, verses 20 to 43 want to look it up, you can, and it'll also come up on the screen. So you can follow along as I read through. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So, This episode appears to be kicked off by a group of Greeks asking to see Jesus. And Jesus' response is somewhat of an off-piste answer, I think, to a fairly simple question. But maybe it wasn't a simple request. Philip doesn't seem to be too sure whether the the Greeks, the Greeks, not the geeks, but the Greeks, a whole other sermon. Paul, uh, (laughs) anyway, Philip doesn't seem to be too sure whether these Greeks should get to meet Jesus and he defers to Andrew's judgment. And I think Andrew's default is everybody gets to meet Jesus. He has a history of getting people access, including his own brother, Peter. However, it seems to be a sign to Jesus Something that when it happened, he knew it was time. The hour has come. I think there is a clue in the final verse of last week's passage. The Pharisees unwittingly prophesying accurately in verse 19. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The Jews were expecting a Messiah, a representative for Israel who will restore their standing in the world as the unique people of God. But God's plan was so much bigger. It was time to draw all people, as we'll see in verse 32. I've been musing on a comment that Jeremy said in passing last week. He said, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, but what were the Greeks looking for? It's an interesting question, and I don't know, but maybe maybe in Jesus they felt something of the inclusivity that was coming. They weren't being kept in the outer court anymore, the only part of the temple that non-Jews were allowed in. They were looking for direct access. And Jesus knows the only way for that to happen is for him to face this hour. And so Jesus says, this is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Then immediately talks of death, the kernel of wheat dying in the ground, to ultimately produce fruit. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, but if you hate it, you'll keep it. Confusing? But I'll come back to that. Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. And this is where John reports an audible voice from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Verse 28. The other Gospels report an audible voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration. 
confirming Jesus' identity as a dear son. But John says this voice was not being for Jesus' benefit, but it was for the benefit of others who heard it, those who recognized it as God's voice. I wonder if it was something to hang on to in the days to come, because the things that happened next certainly didn't look like glorifying in any sense they had known it before. And again, I'm going to explore that more later. At this point, Jesus describes, as as John puts it, the kind of death he was going to die. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And the crowd are getting a bit antsy now. We begin to see the first of the fair weather followers, as Jeremy described last week, they're breaking away. The euphoria of the entry into Jerusalem with hosannas and leaf waving is wearing off with this death talk. We're here for a Messiah. This is not Messiah talk. Well, not the one they're expecting anyway. And Jesus makes a plea for them to stick with him using John's favorite metaphor, Jesus as the light. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of light. In the last section of today's passage, I think that John is trying to make sense of different responses to Jesus, of those that saw the amazing signs right up to the resuscitation of Lazarus, but still didn't believe. And he recalls that prophecy from Isaiah. He has blinded their hearts and heart, blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal him. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. I think it echoes a bit the hardening of Pharaoh's heart before the exodus from Egypt. And of course, the first Easter is an echo of that exodus. Jesus, the Passover lamb, bringing a new exodus. And yet some people did believe, even some leaders but they weren't open about it for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Ouch. And I don't think I can judge them. I asked myself where I would have been in that story. If I was one of the crowd, would I have been one of Jeremy's fair weather followers? Possibly. Would I have been one of those drawn to Jesus, compelling teaching, backed with signs and real authority, but too scared to speak out publicly, afraid of the consequences? Probably. I feel, I really feel quite strongly that, that God has spoken to me through this passage about two particular things, the points that I want to talk to you about now. And for the note takers, the headings are God's glory and God's economy. The glory of God or being glorified is mentioned five or six times in the passage. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified and praise Father, glorify your name. And a voice from heaven comes, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And I'm sure that the minds of his hearers went immediately to the glory of God descending on the temple in a cloud so overpowering that the priests couldn't perform their duties. 
the Jews will be thinking, at last, now we're talking. The return of God's glory to the temple would mean the restoration of Israel to its rightful place as the unique people of God and the overthrow of their oppressors. The glory of military might, ultimate authority, awesome cosmic powers. <laughs> Anybody living space? Any Disney fans? Yes, you recognize the quote from the genie in Aladdin. But maybe it is a kind of accurate picture of how the people saw God. Awesome power, ultimate authority over the nations, residing somehow in the people and temple in Israel at their beck and call to sort out their problems. But God's plan is so much bigger now than one nation. And it's not what being glorified is going to look like for Jesus. In amongst all this talk of glory is the talk of death. Being glorified for Jesus looks like being crucified. Now hang on a minute more, you might be thinking. Surely the glorifying comes with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, not the crucifixion. And if you are thinking that, even just a little bit, can I respectfully reorientate you as I think I have been reorientated on this. God's glory looks like crucifixion. Bloody, messy, agonizing death. Our God took on flesh and blood, lived among us as a man and died on a cross. The Gospels all record for us that Jesus agonized over going to the cross. The three other Gospels record it in the Garden of Gethsemane. John puts it in our passage today at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Jesus, despite knowing that this is the ultimate plan, and it will be worth it, he doesn't skip gladly to his death, but he does willingly submit. The glory of God is a true reflection of his nature, and his nature is self-giving love. That is the glory of the cross. I think it even fits with the Old Testament passages on God's glory, the Shekinah, his presence, the glory that the prophets use amazing, weird language to try and capture its beauty. I think in our heart of hearts as humans, we know that there is nothing so beautiful as self-giving love. Struck even this week, you might have heard of the French police officer who switched places with the hostage in the supermarket. He will rightly be honored and remembered because he gave his life like that. And this is our God. It genuinely blows our minds. How could anyone love like that? How could Jesus love us like that? The glory of God. But still, we have the tendency to want to see the glory in the victory. 
We know the end of the story. It didn't end in death. The resurrection and ascension of Jesus to make all enemies his footstool. That's the victory. That's the glory. But not without the crucifixion. It's not. You can't have one without the other. The kingdom that was inaugurated, that began with Jesus' death and resurrection, is an upside-down kingdom. I need constant reminding of that. Bringing me on to the next point, which is God's economy. Let me read you verses 24 and 25 from the message. Listen carefully. Unless a grain of wheat is buried in the ground, dead to the world, it is never any more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real, eternal. Um, can I share with you a, a bit about me, about what's going on in my life? You know, it's, it's just a few of us, so it's just between us, okay? I believe uh, that God has called me to be a church planter. And I don't tell you that to big myself up in any way, so please don't hear that. In fact, I have tried my very best to reject, refuse, and ignore this calling. Sweet friends have prodded me on it, and there have been various times when a message or a word has been given specifically about church planting, and I ignored it or pushed it away as not for me, despite the pounding heart and sweaty palms that are usually a sign for me that God might be speaking. Then a few years ago, about three years ago to be exact, I gave in. Oh, all right, God, if you want me to, I'll plant a church. And nothing happened. I did my best, and I think I am doing my best, to put myself in church plantee situations, preparing by studying or leading small groups or a ministry like Storehouse, and nothing happened. But God, I said yes. I said I'd do it. And gently, he said, not like that you won't. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground. I've been part of the vineyard movement for about 20 years now. And in our movement, there is a certain amount of kudos given to church planters. They are frontline soldiers establishing the beachheads of the kingdom. The vineyard believes in church planting because we believe it's an effective form of evangelism. Did you know that? It's not about bringing a new fancy church to town for Christians to try something different. It's a proven way to introduce new people to Jesus. And I thought I would tell you that as an aside, but it's not really an aside. It's a reminder to me. It's not about the kudos of being a church planter. It's about people meeting Jesus. There is a little death that needs to occur. 
my ego. It's a subtle but vital shift from Morag, church planter, to wanting to see churches planted and being willing to play a part in making that happen. There's a quote attributed to Ronald Reagan. It says this, I know, unlikely source, but here it is. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. I'm going to say that again. There is no limit to the amount of good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit. The dream and ambition is still there. In themselves, they're not wrong, but it's the motivation that's important. I read those verses from the message because I love the way it puts verse 25. Anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life, but if you let it go, reckless in your love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. I love the idea of reckless love. The other three Gospels also have similar verses where Jesus says that you need to lose your life to save it. You can look them up later. Matthew 16, verse 25, Luke 9, verse 24, and Mark 8, verse 35. But I also found another verse from Matthew, quite helpful. Matthew 10, verse 39, where Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or again, in the message, if your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. What seems like a death of our ego and agenda is actually the path to being fully ourselves. One verse which has often been quoted to me in ministry times or in words given to me is Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those sweet friends who can see that it is the desire of my heart to be a church planter, pray this over me. And it is so lovely to hear that. He will give you the desire of your heart. But you can't ignore the first part of the verse. Delight yourself in the Lord. Or to put it another way, forget about yourself and look to me. Then you'll find both yourself and me. There is no other place where you will feel more fully alive than slap bang in the middle of God's purposes. But I need to warn you. It might look like your hopes and dreams are dead and buried. Actually, I can practically guarantee that you will go through this at some point in your life, maybe multiple times. So please hear this. God's economy, making dead things alive. I love the quiet of Easter Saturday, the most non-day of the Easter weekend. We're having a Monday Thursday meal, a Good Friday reflections, and then the world goes silent on Saturday. I imagine what it would be like for the disciples, scattered and afraid, 
as far as they knew, it was all over. The authorities, Pharisees, priests, Romans, whoever, had won. Imagine being Peter. The last words he spoke on Friday that Jesus might have heard was his denial. As far as he knows, that's it. No chance of redemption. Game over. Thank you for playing. But it wasn't all over. We know the ending. We know Sunday's coming. We know that if a grain of wheat dies, it bears fruit. What a great picture to hang on to when you think you're out for the count or dead and buried. Especially this year when I think it feels like we've waited for spring for so long, but we've made it. The clocks have changed and the first few shoots of new growth are coming. Fruit from death, new life, recreation, God's economy. And how valuable in God's hands is a life stripped of agenda, ego, and self-preservation, ready to be reckless in love. I hope that I can, that, that we can learn this lesson to remember that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. Let's remember not to measure success or glory as the rest of the world does by visibility, prominence, numbers, or oppressive authority. Let's not despise things or lives that appear to be dead or dying or the just people, those that might say, I'm just a mum, I'm just a student, I'm just a technician, just a fill in your own blank. There could be things in our own lives or in the lives of others that we can't see, which are buried, waiting for the right time, the right conditions for God to bring them to life again. God's glory is the awesome beauty of self-giving love. And God's economy is life from death. Let's stand and I'll pray for us.